When I was growing up in Guyana, many days you weren't sure who you would be having dinner with at home. This is because at dinner time, for example, if my friends were around, or my sister's friends were around, or someone had popped in for two minutes but stayed for two hours, or a neighbor had just come around to borrow something, whoever was in the house at that time was invited to the table. And my mom would somehow work a miracle with the meal and everyone would have something to eat. Everyone was invited to the table. And in many cultures, eating around the table is a sign of inclusivity, welcome, acceptance and unity. Today, we continue in our series, Undivided. And we're going to look at one table. We look at an example where having a united table really didn't work out and how the Apostle Paul set about addressing it. If you have your Bible, can you please turn with me to Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 2, and we'll be reading verses 1 to 14. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preached among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Yet, not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God shows no favoritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at working Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles, because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy 
even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? This is the word of God. Here we see that both Paul and Peter are at the meeting of the council in Jerusalem. Paul is clear about his apostolic call to preach to the Gentiles and that it had come directly from the Lord Jesus. And therefore, he hadn't come to seek permission, but to check whether the same gospel was being preached to both Jews and Gentiles. Paul and Peter are on the same page as far as preaching the gospel to the Gentiles is concerned. But there were other strong cultural and religious issues at play at that time. Now John Stott in his commentary on Acts gives us some insight. It is difficult for us to grasp the impassable gulf which yawned in those days between the Jews on the one hand and the Gentiles on the other. Not that the Old Testament countenance such a divide. It affirmed that God had a purpose for the Gentiles. By choosing and blessing the Jews, he intended to bless all families of the earth. Genesis 12, 1-4. The tragedy was that Israel twisted this doctrine of election into one of favoritism, became filled with racial pride and hatred, despised the Gentiles as dogs, and developed traditions that kept them apart. No Orthodox Jew would ever enter the home of a Gentile. All familiar intercourse with Gentiles was forbidden. But the fact that there is one gospel is supposed to change all of that. And from the passage, we can see four areas where it did. The first is that there is no slavery. Verses 4 to 5 says, Some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. One gospel means that the observance of the law is no longer needed for salvation. The Judaizers wanted to enslave the Gentile Christians with a system of works that went against salvation by grace alone. For them, the Gentiles needed to live up to Jewish standards by adding some works to their salvation in order to be acceptable. Secondly, there was no partiality. Partiality is unfair bias in favor of one person or thing. It's favoritism. In verse 6 we read, As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever there were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. Here we see that Paul was not intimidated by the reputation of the members of the council of Jerusalem. And that's because God shows no partiality. He was confident that his call 
to preach to the Gentiles came directly from God and not from man. And when it comes to the matter of race, Peter, we see in Acts 10, having visited the Gentile Cornelius' house and seeing his household saved and filled with the Holy Spirit, this is what he said. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. So God has no favorite. He doesn't favor one ethnic group above another. And as you read through the book of Acts, you will see the Jewish believers under the power of the gospel and of the Holy Spirit, firstly accepted and embraced Samaritans and then Africans in Acts 10 and then Romans, Acts, uh, Acts 10 uh, and Greeks, Acts 11. There was also no fear. We read in verse 12, for before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. So Peter was afraid of his own ethnic community and people whose opinions he respected. This was peer pressure. He was under pressure to conform to Jewish norms he was raised with, and that's what Paul confronted him on. Peter was afraid of being shunned by the Judaizers from Jerusalem. On the other hand, Paul, who was grounded in the fact that the gospel meant equality for both Jews and Gentiles, he was not fearful of confronting Peter. Finally, there's no hypocrisy. We read in verses 13 to 14, the other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs. It would appear that in Antioch, Peter was no longer following strictly all of the Jewish customs, as they were not necessary for salvation. How then could he expect Gentile Christians to follow those same customs that he no longer observed? Now, based on what we've learned so far in this series, we can see that it's important for Christians to confront racism. But why confront? I think firstly, racism and ethnic bigotry are not of the heart of God. Racism breeds injustice, which is also not of the heart, not of, the heart of God. But also, this is a body issue. Paul speaks of the church as the body of Christ. And when one part of the body is hurt, the whole body is affected. Take the example of someone stubbing their toe. Their brain goes, this hurts. Their mouth might scream. Their body would contort itself and the arm 
would move down so that the hand can soothe the toe. The whole body is affected. And some of us might feel, this issue really doesn't affect me. I sympathize, but I can't feel any pain. Actually, I came across a rare condition called congenital anaglesia, where the person who has that condition cannot feel any pain. Now, this might seem a good thing when you need to visit a dentist, but it's also dangerous because you can miss warning signs of stress and damage that pain communicates until it's too late. The body of Christ should not be lulled into a false sense of security in the area of racial injustice. Now, good aims for confronting uh, racism is that in some cases, it might be just to clarify any ambiguity. Why am I not being treated the same as others? At other times, it might be to inform and to educate. But ultimately, it would be to encourage a change in behavior. How do we confront? In a minute, we'll look at Paul's example, but just a few overarching comments. For us as Christians, there needs to be much wisdom exercised here. We need to confront with God's wisdom and grace and not just have a rant. We need the help of the Holy Spirit as we approach these matters because as we've heard before, behind them lie spiritual forces intent on control through confusion and deception. Firstly, I wanna say that I'm no expert when it comes to dealing with racism. And many of you would have suffered from it and dealt with it far more than I have. I can only speak from my experiences and those of friends and family. I also know that some of you in your day-to-day -day work, that this is the focus of your time. I salute the work that you do, and I'm sure that we are all open to learn from your expertise in this area. We live in a world where some changes wouldn't happen overnight. So, so sometimes we need to be patient and we need to be careful and not put ourselves in impossible or dangerous situations. Now, getting back to the passage, I think there are three things we can learn from the way Paul confronted Peter in this passage. Paul was clear about the reasons for his confrontation. My sense is that Paul had observed Peter for some time maybe a few days, a few weeks, before he confronted him. It wasn't a knee-jerk reaction. He was sure of his reasons for confronting Peter because by acceding to opinion of the Judaizers, Peter was separating himself on the basis of ethnic identity and in the process, reintroducing works as a prerequisite for salvation. So, we need to be clear on the grounds for challenge and clear about what's at stake. So we need to know what the Bible says on the issue, which is part of the reason for this series. We need to know what the law says. We need to know what policies 
that are written, say, that support our challenge. And we need to use them wisely. Paul was robust in his challenge without being offensive, and he was very focused. However, I do realize that in this area, many situations are not very clear at all. For me, there have been plain occasions of in-your-face racism. For example, times, times when I've been walking down the street and I've had eggs thrown at me from passing cars. Or the classic of sitting on a train uh, near to a woman who then clutches her bag as if the only reason for me being there was to rob her. Or the time I was walking on a, alone, uh, walking on a quiet street, uh, when a group of lads in a car drove slowly up and down and they were hanging out the windows, shouting uh, and making monkey noises chants at me. Now that's overt racism. Clear cases, but either without the opportunity to challenge or it wasn't wise to challenge at that point. But as I examined my experiences and those of friends and families, I think we came to the conclusion that there is a lot of racism that is very nuanced in the way it's presented. And you're left thinking, was that deliberate? Or am I just imagining things? Years ago, when we were in our 20s, a cousin and I were driving down the M4 motorway in a one-year-old sporty hot hatch, I must add, within the speed limit. And we went past a police car on a lay-by. Sure enough, less than a minute later, there was a siren be, uh, sung in behind us, flashing lights, the police pulled us over and told us that the car had been reported stolen. My cousin was somehow able to prove that he had authorization to use the car from his work. But I do wonder, if there were two white lads in that car, would they have been pulled over? This is possibly an example of the nuanced side of systemic discrimination that makes it difficult to confront and is perpetuated in many cases by an imbalance of power. There are some systems that provide inbuilt opportunities for discrimination while shielding those who exercise it from being challenged. So, it's not always clear-cut, but we should be ready to challenge racial discrimination with wisdom and clarity when and where appropriate. The second thing is that Paul confronted Peter's actions. Now, Paul didn't go up to Peter and say, Peter, you're a bigot. Instead, he was saying, Peter, your actions are hypocritical because I know that you, be you believe differently. There's a difference between having a conversation with someone on what you said and did versus what you are. Saying what you say, what you just said or did was racist may cause some people to reflect on their words and actions, can open a discussion on why it's racist, and could provide a teachable moment if that person is open to it. Having a conversation on what they are, on the other hand, 
such as calling someone a racist, can lead us down a rabbit hole of denials, counter-accusations, leading to arguments, where the reason for the challenge gets lost in the melee of it all. It's difficult because such an approach uses what they said or did to draw conclusions about what they are, which we can't always prove, and which many people will vehemently deny anyway. So challenging people in organizations on what they say and do will probably lead to more fruitful conversations and actions. However, this is not to deny that some people and organizations are racist and proud of it, and they need to be called out as such. Now, finally, from the passage, Peter responded to the context. The passage says that Paul confronted Peter in front of them all. I've read commentaries and articles that said, why didn't Paul call Peter to one side and have a quiet word about it? We don't know why, but I don't think Paul's aim was just to embarrass Peter. It was important that Peter be confronted in the context of his influence. This meant in front of Barnabas and the other Jews who were following his example. But I also think in front of the Judaizers who were influencing him. It was done in front of the people who needed to know about it. Peter needed to be strong and brave in two ways. He needed to be brave for those he was influencing by admitting that he'd got it wrong. And on the other hand, he needed to stand up to the Judaizers and tell them to back off and do it in front of the others. Now, Peter's actions probably left the Gentiles feeling confused. Why was he and the other Jews suddenly not eating at their table? What had they done wrong? One observation is that Paul didn't just leave it up to the Gentiles to challenge Peter, which, of us, which as we've already seen, is sometimes difficult because there is a balance of power, uh, there's an imbalance of power in the relationship. However, Paul, a Jew, challenged Peter, another Jew, on the fact that his behavior to Christian Gentiles was wrong. And so sometimes it would be helpful if those who are not being discriminated against speak up on behalf of those being discriminated against when they are aware of it. If only those being discriminated against speak up, then sometimes they risk being unfairly labeled as troublemakers, not team players, wanting to rock the boat, just making waves. Of course, I trust that our lifestyle and Christian witness is such that under normal circumstances, those labels are not true. But Paul speaking up on the issue was important because he couldn't just be labeled or dismissed as a troublemaker. Finally, can Peter be held accountable for the culture he was born into or its history? I don't think so. However, he can and should be held accountable 
for what he does now as a follower of Christ. Some of us will find responding to this message difficult, not because we aren't against racism, but because we just don't like confrontation. This is natural. However, let's allow the Holy Spirit to guide us and give us courage we need when we need it. We can all play our part, however small. We can also support each other as we deal with these issues. So, one race, one gospel, and now one table. Everyone is invited and everyone is equal. This is the heart of God and, and is at the heart of the gospel. In the New Testament, sharing food becomes a bridge between strangers, reduces hostility, and strengthens family ties. Its power is seen in the celebration of the Lord's Supper, a meal that has become a symbol of unity in the Christian faith. Let's gather around this table, extending grace to one another, even as we've received grace from God. Of course, everyone is equal, but by submitting to God and being open to each other, we can be mutually accountable as the body of Christ and ensure that unlike Peter, we aren't swayed by forces eager to divide us. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you that salvation is by grace alone. Thank you for one race, one gospel, and one table. Lord, we know that for some, the issues shared today might have opened old wounds, brought back memories of hurt and distress, and I pray that you would bring healing and comfort to them. Bless our discussions on this topic in groups and other forums this week, and give us further revelation and insight. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who unites us in Christ. In his name, amen.